Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we learn about a lost black author, discuss the birth of slavery, and learn about schooling during the pandemic. All this plus new music from Sen Morimoto, The Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for August 7, 2020. I-94 chatted with Veronica T. Watson, editor of a new collection of stories by the late Frank Yerby. Watson talked about how Yerby, at one time the best-selling author in America and the first black man to have a novel that sold a million copies, has been forgotten. Watson details Yerby's prickly relationship with other black writers of his era, his dazzling range, and why he deserves to be rediscovered. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. Veronica, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Veronica, let's start with the beginning and talk a little bit about who uh, Frank Yearby was. Uh, as it happens, uh, before the show started, my mother, who is also uh, a mid-list artist, uh, wrote to me and said, you know, my, my grandmother and grandfather really loved the stories of Frank Yearby. Uh, and, you know, that might strike some people as unusual that two Scotch-Irish immigrants uh, in, the, in the 1940s <laughs> might be reading Frank's work. But Frank actually was an incredibly popular author, and it, it might not have been super well known that he was black or African-American during that time. Uh, he wrote what, something like 33 novels, am yeah. I correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, That's correct. Three of them were made into movies, including The Foxes of Harrow, which is a movie uh, I've actually seen that was with Rex Harrison and Maureen O'Hara. It was Oscar-nominated. Uh, he sold a million copies of the book that movie was based on, uh, and he, two other of his you know, books were made into, into movies as well. So he was a fairly successful, long-lasting author uh, that did deeply you know, researched kind of historical romances and historical fiction. But today, his name is not necessarily uh, on the front of people's minds. Veronica, can you tell us a little bit, first of all, about who, who Frank was, why he was so important, and why is it that we don't know that much about him today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I love to talk about Frank because I think his story tells us so much about the politics of Black writing at a particular time in our history. So he was born in September 5th, 1916, and uh, he had a 33-year writing career. I mean, if you can imagine uh, the endurance that it takes to write that. Um, He wrote about a novel every year to year and a half. He had one published for most of his career. So he was incredibly prolific. Um, And it doesn't surprise me to hear that your mother and grandmother are familiar with his work because uh, when he started writing in the 1940s, had his first novel, The Foxes of Harrow, as you just mentioned, published in 1946, uh, Frank was actually one of the most well-known and most anticipated writers of his time. Uh, People looked forward to his novels. They were sort of eagerly chomping for them to come out and for them to get them, and they passed them around and they read them together. So um, of a generation, he was incredibly well-known. And you're absolutely right. Many of his readers, most of whom were white readers, did not know that he was a Black writer. Um, And I think that there was some... um, intentionality behind that. I think that of the time, people were concerned that he wouldn't sell as well or be as well received if people knew his race. But he was also uh, just a bit of um, a rebel in the regard that he did not necessarily want to be identified in any particular way by any racial category because he thought that they were all pretty much trash, right? He didn't believe in the concept. And so he um, really didn't make a big deal of announcing uh, a racial 
identity because it's not how he thought of himself and he didn't think it was terribly important about his work. Um, so that's a bit of who he was. And it's also a bit of an explanation for why he is not as well known now, because the reason that Black writers from the 1940s, 50s, and perhaps well into the 60s were known at all is because they were celebrated as Black writers. Um, and Frank didn't write what we traditionally understand as Black literature. He wrote what we now know of as white life literature, which meant that he wrote most of his novels were written about white characters. Um, it wasn't that they didn't have Black characters in them. It's just that Black characters weren't typically the central characters of his work. And so Black uh, critics and scholars didn't really review him. They didn't talk about him. They didn't... Um, you know, sort of promote him in various ways. Um, he also didn't get a lot of play in terms of being taught in academic circles. And so a lot of his literature, once the, the period of it passed, uh, simply went out of publication. Um, but he was being read all over the world. He wasn't just a U.S. phenomenon. So his novels were uh, republished in many, many languages and countries. And so he had a wide varied readership, but many people simply don't know him now because the way that we keep those names alive and going is by teaching them and talking about them, and it didn't happen. Veronica, I wanted to ask you a question about Frank's Chicago connection. So I learned about Mr. Yerby from a book that we had, we had another author on, I believe it was Chicago Renaissance, was that mm -hmm. Lisa, yeah. by Lisa Olson? And yeah. she mentioned uh, Yerby as part of the WPA um, with Al Gren and Richard Wright, and I believe was Gwendolyn Brooks part of the WPA as well. Yeah. And yeah, I think it was. So I did a little research. I had never heard of him, and I picked up The Writers in Revolt, which was a, an anthology from Anvil that came out here in Chicago. But he was in Chicago for a brief period and attended the University of Chicago, correct? And then he went broke. That's correct. And from what I understand, he, he, <laughs> he couldn't afford to stay, so he went back south. Yes. Yes. So he, he was working uh, there and he was part of the WPA um, for a very short time. But it is where he made some important connections in terms of other writers who supported him as a writer to, to really validate that as a career path. So, you know, coming out of the um, Great Depression and into the 1940s, times are hard for everybody, but they were especially difficult for African-American writers who were trying to make their living in that way. And Frank hadn't really broken through uh, those circles. So he was working all over the place. He worked in an auto plant. He uh, worked as a teacher uh, in several different institutions. Um, and so when he moved back south, he actually returned to his teaching career that he felt was a little more stable and where he had some different kinds of connections and kind of understood the culture a little bit better and how to move in it and, and support his family, his growing family, as a matter of fact. So um, his time there in Chicago was short, but I think it did make an impact on him and his commitment to pursuing writing as a career, as opposed to really kind of thinking, well, I better just keep with the stuff that's going to feed me and uh, not pursue this dream that I have. It's interesting, and that, that kind of brings up something I want to ask you about, because Frank seems to me to be someone that uh, was always a writer that worked for money. 
um, which is, you know, it's a, it's a distinction that I think is kind of lost on people outside of the perfection. You know, many, many writers claim they, they write for art, but many more writers, you know, do this because they're looking to put food on their table and, and provide for their family. And Frank, yeah. uh, I think you mentioned this kind of in your introduction as well. You note that Frank always made a point of, uh, you know, this was something he did as a, as a vocation. Uh, and he worked very hard at it. He was a meticulous researcher. He was um, a very uh, hardworking kind of nose to the grindstone person that, as you know, really kind of pumped a novel out almost every year. Do you think that had any part in the fact that he now today is a largely forgotten author? Because it, it seems to me sometimes we look at people who are... Um, jobbing writers and and writing popular fiction we somehow put them lower on the totem pole than we would people who uh you know claim to pursue writing as high art to me there's there's frankly no difference at all you're, you're a writer either way but i right. wonder if frank's reputation suffered because of that because he did uh you know as we've already noted he was the first you know million selling black author in america and he enjoyed very early success was there a backlash to that is that part of the reason why he's kind of fallen out of the canon? Absolutely. Um, it was part of the reason that um, Black writers and critics didn't take him terribly seriously because he made no, um, he didn't make it a secret that he thought that writing was the thing that was going to support him um, in the lifestyle in which he wanted to be living. And so for him, um, the wide readership was much more important at the early part of his career than having uh, the stellar reputation as an artist who only writes for the art of it, right? Um, and so he wrote popular fiction um, very clearly because he wanted to sell his books. Um, and I don't think that won him any friends uh, among people who thought it was supposed to be about something else. Um, but having said that, um, I think, you know, when you look at his writing, you look at the letters that are in the archive, when you really uh, look at some of the interviews that he gave, what's so striking is that by the time that he was about two thirds into his career, so maybe the 20 year mark, if you will, um, his attitudes toward his writing changed. And he really did begin to want to produce great literature. Um, and I think it's really sad and, and perhaps telling that he wasn't sure that he ever did that. Um, he was working against a lot of very powerful um, pressures to produce the kind of literature that he thought would be sort of critically acclaimed and accepted and reviewed and taught in schools and universities. Uh, by that time, he was really a cash cow and people didn't want to see him change his style, right? They didn't want to see him write about different um, genres and write different uh, storylines than had made him so successful. And so I think he, um, he really worked hard to write that kind of a novel. Um, the one is, you know, sort of an interesting and sad story. The one that he thought would kind of make its mark um, one of them didn't get accepted, um, and so he never published that one. And then the second one that he finally did get out after a lot of editing um, didn't do commercially very well. And so it seemed to have kind of sealed the, the fate of, well, I guess this is not going to be it for me. Uh, I might as well go back to writing the thing that everybody knows me for.
Mario Smith welcomed Shaka Rawls, a Leah High School alum who went on to become principal and engineered a turnaround. Rawls talked about the Chicago Archdiocese and the Black to School plan during this pandemic, he being one of a handful of black principals in the Archdiocese and his continuing plan to revitalize Leo High. News from the service entrance airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Joining me on the program right now, he is an alum of Leo High School from the great class of 1993. He is one of the uh, uh, really dynamic educators in our city, and 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 the Archdiocese is lucky to have the brother as the leader of Leo, the mighty lions of Leo. Ladies and gentlemen, my man Shaka Rawls joins us on the show. Hey, Principal Rawls, how you doing? I'm doing great, Mario. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's good to see you, and I'm glad that you're here, and I, I know that you're busy, and I'm going to make this as fast as I can, but I have a bunch of questions to ask. First of all, uh, how are you? How's everything going, all things considered, with the, with COVID-19 and whatnot, and your boys over at Leo? It's going well. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of turmoil in our city right now, uh, you know, with uh, racial injustice and, and, and fighting for equal rights, as well as that coupled with the fact that we're, you know, obviously battling this COVID virus and systemic racism. We got, we, we got, we got battles on all fronts, if you will. Um, right. And so um, we're, we're, we're prepared. I think, you know, we, my, my president, Dan McGrath, has done a great job of making sure that the right people are in place. And uh, for the most part, we're hanging in there. We're hanging in there. Got a long way to go, but we're hanging in there. I know that there are a lot of concerns that a lot of parents have about sending their kids back to school in a few weeks. You guys are about to start like shortly, shortly, if you haven't already, a week from tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Um, What is the plan at LEO and and through the Archdiocese in terms of uh, how are you going to have the, the, how's the structure set for these children to be able to learn? So uh, one of the most important things that we have to do is obviously temperature checks as they entering into the building, entering into our transportation, maintaining social distance, making sure that we have sufficient amounts of PPE for our whole school and all those things that we've done. We've also, you know, doubled down on sanitizer, disinfectant. We've hired a new cleaning crew to clean the building every evening. We also have thorough cleanings every weekend. Uh, we're temperature checking the kids before they leave the, they leave the house, temperature checking them before they come into the building. And that's to get kids that are symptomatic. <clears throat> Excuse me. In addition to that, we've had, um, I actually have COVID testing set up on August 8th for all my whole school community. So we can mm. at least start the school start the school year knowing uh, who is possibly asymptomatic and have have uh, uh, infected and, and who's clean, who has a clean bill of health. Is it, is it a concern that you may have to pause? And if you do have to pause, are you guys ready for remote learning and stuff like that? Of course, yeah. Um, the chances of us having to pause, yeah, yeah I'm, very, I'm very concerned um, to be honest with you, um, but so we have right now. I have I have two plans that are in place. One is is uh, um, our back to school face to face plan, and also have our on what we started was our online learning program, which mm-hmm. is a full interactive program where we do synchronous classes three days a week, and then we have what we call flexible Fridays. So every Friday, the kids are we're trying to address our students' social emotional needs. So then every Friday they're able to come in virtually and drop in and say hi what's up to me let's 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 talk about you know the sports that aren't being played or the ones that are being played right let's just chop it up like we normally do being an all-male school we have a different relationship with the young men here right so there's a there's this uh academic instruction and delivering them instruction is one goal but but the other goal is to make sure that they have some emotional safe space while they're in this in this building so we provide both the academic rigor with roughly 20 to 25 hours of of face-to-face instruction and then we also supplement that with another 10 hours of you know conversation and and ability for students to have kind of more casual conversations with not only their friends but their teachers as well you know when um 
you you know I like you, man. You 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 one of my you one of my go to guys in this town. What? And I know that you did something that's kind of unprecedented, and 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 this is going to lead into the question of how the archdiocese views you, because I know that they view Mavericks way different than they do folks that tend to you know like, line up with them. I like my job, man. <laughs> I'm like, you won't lose your job. I swear to God, you're not going to lose your job. Not because of me, you won't. And you're not going to lose your job anyway. But um, uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I went to Catholic school at one time in my life. I went to St. Carthage on 78th and Yale. Now now defunct. Rest yeah. in peace, St. Carthage. Um, and I know what that's like for a young man to be in that school environment, especially um, when we're talking about, uh, in, in, in essence, a private school. Um, and I know you coming back to Leo and the things that you've done, even with this summer, with the social justice campaign that you've done. Um, so this is a twofold. How was that viewed by your superiors and what makes you do things like that? Um, so, <clears throat> um, I'm trying to make sure I, I got a mortgage, so I'm trying to make sure everything <laughs> uh, real talk. I don't lose your job because of me, I promise. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> we, we, we didn't get a lot of traction. I don't do things to, uh, to, to please the arts, although I do want them to be happy with the work that we do here. But my work is done on 79th Street. So my work is done with the boys, the 200 students that I have enrolled in Leo High School. And that's my major concern. I never pick my head up and look around and see who's looking. Um, right. actually, actually, one of the things of that movement, I was telling my, 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 my boss, President McGrath, I was saying, the last thing we need is somebody else on TV giving a speech, right? We need people out here doing work. Um, and so actually I kind of thought the press was counterintuitive to what really the intentions of, of, my, of, of the movement was. And that's mm -hmm. to really for us to get to work. Um, so I really kind of shy, I know it seems, it doesn't seem like it, but I really kind of shy away from the press. This isn't about that. This isn't about, I mean, the marches and demonstrations are great. We need those people out there doing those things. We need, you know, we need people to hold hands and, and we need, you know, uh, to stop traffic, but we also need brothers and sisters with brooms and dustpans right. and, right. and cutting lawns. We got, we got some, somebody got to do some work too, right? <laughs> right. So, and right. that's just, and that's, a, that's just my passion. I, I told my, my, my teachers yesterday when I was doing the introductions, I said, I, I'm just an activist turned principal, right? And so mm -hmm. I, I'm not going to ever forget that. I'm an activist first, right? I'm from 63rd and, and Rhodes, you know what I'm saying? There I'm from is. Woodline, right? Yes, so, sir, so, Woodline, baby! <laughs> yeah, and so the, the hustle in me ain't going to let me sit back and do nothing or... or, or I'm not, I'm not here to make movies. I'm here to make moves, right? You know what I'm saying? Right. So that's, that's the way it works around here. Oh, they're going to make a movie about you, though. You no. might as well just give that up. It's happening. <laughs> I'm 727 East 60th Street, too, by the way, oh, man. So, you yes, already know. I know the deal. Woodlawn is, you know, I, I live in HP. I love Hyde Park. And I love my city to death. But if it weren't for Woodlawn, it wouldn't be me. So I, I, I totally get it. What brought you back? I, I, I've known you a while, and I know you were doing other things in education. And, and I know that you had worked in other spots, and you were very involved in, in on the elementary school level. Was it love that brought you back to Leo? Was it the fact that you were an alum? What, what brought you back? It's, so I, and just real talk, and I've always I often said this to my boys, I was not the best of students. Um, and when I came back, people that were my teachers were my employees now, right? And mm -hmm. so 
having them even request for me to return to this building <laughs> was, was an honor. It's quite, it's quite the honor. But I also have always loved the work that we've done on 79th Street. Even when the school back in the 60s, when Leo was holding it down for the working class Irish and German immigrants. In the mm-hmm. 1970s, when we, we started, you know, had mass waves of African-Americans who, who went to school, went to Leo shoulder to shoulder with these same people. Leo continued the same spirit to provide quality education for the working class of this, of this, of this community, right? And so we're, we always say that Leo has always been on mission. We've all, we're always doing work. Right. And so I want to be a part of that. And so it was my it was my my spirit. And uh, it was quite the honor for them to even ask me to come back. And I, so once they asked me, I mean, I, you know, obviously there's some financial considerations. It's a private school. So I was I'm not making the public school money. Um, right. So but my venture car works. So I'm good. You know, so <laughs> I, I, I can move around a shot. <laughs> you have a unique relationship with your boys, too, man. They 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 key in on you. It's very rare. And I, and I, I'm, I'm and, and this leads to another question. It's very rare in this day and age, and I don't know if it's just an, a thing with schools within the archdiocese or just the fact that you as a black man talking to black boys, they they are laser focused on your every word. And I, that's a trust thing. How, how do you establish trust in these kids who don't trust anybody? It's, it's, it's really easy, I'll be honest with you, because they, I'm sure to some degree they see a little bit of themselves in me, right? Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. and, so I, I, and, and I'm not afraid to shirt and tie. I'm Brooks Brothers down, right, when I come to work. But I have to remind them that I am from around here. You know what I'm saying? Right. If, you, right. if you can look a child in the eye and say, I see you, I know what you're thinking. I, I actually, sometimes I respect their moves, even when they're trying to get around systems that I put in place. I respect them to try to circumvent systems. So that's, really, <laughs> that's a skill. And that's right, a skill. And so if you can look at them and see them as people, I see them as people, I see them as individuals. I don't see that those, these are my boys. I always say that and I get in trouble by some of the alumni. They always say, oh, they're our boys. I'm like, no, nah, these, these my boys. These are they're my your boys. boys, yes, sir. And so I think the, 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 the 16 year old boy in me can look out of eye at the 16 year old boy in them. You know what I mean? And yeah. so good or bad. And that, that means that sometimes I'm not allowed at some conversations that, that means that, you know, at some meetings I don't get spoken to, you know, they, and I, and I don't, there's no one else in, Quite frankly, it's the Archdiocese of Chicago. There's probably one other African American male in the Arch, right? Mm. And so, you know, I, you know, I, I sit at the table by myself. I'm cool with that. It's not. That's not what this is about. My work is done right here on the nine. And that was my next question about black principles within that system, and just in general. Um, I was. Uh, there's a conversation that comes up on Facebook that I'm sure you see every now and then because we have the same friends in, this, in in that cipher about who's your first black teacher. Um, my first black teacher was when I was in kindergarten. I, mm-hmm. I, I can't, I can, I did not have a teacher that wasn't black until I got to high school. Mm. I'm, I'm sorry, until I got to fifth grade, and then after that, it wasn't again until high school that I that I had that experience. Um, and you're saying there's only one other black male yeah. in the arch. How how does that that has to change if 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 their numbers are what I hear that they are for the archdiocese in terms of kids enrolling in the programs, a lot of those kids are black and Latino, and the majority of them are black and Latino. How do they? How does? How does that problem get addressed? Because I I know you have a mortgage. I ain't trying to get you. <laughs> so uh, so I'll start with the the, the PC answer, which is uh, I was recently on two task force, one to recruit minority teachers, particularly African-American and Latino teachers into the Archdiocese of Chicago. And that was also mm-hmm. on a task force to recruit administrators uh, on a task force led by um, uh, Phyllis Cavallone and, and Heidi Bacali, who are uh, Archdiocesan administrators and do a great job, social justice minded. They're moving in the right direction. Unfortunately, we're trying to undo 
you know, the hundred year history of the archdiocese in the city of Chicago. That doesn't happen yeah. overnight, nor right. with a program, right? So there's ideological changes that needs to happen, really top down, right? Um, that needs to happen before people feel comfortable in these spaces. Because I was very clear about them that this is a contentious space for me. When I go to meetings, it's contentious. It's not. I don't feel welcomed at all. Um, until mm. you change that, there's no way I'm gonna. I am not going to recruit anyone to be in this environment when I know that you can go to a school over and feel a lot more welcome and even be appreciated more. Right. Um, and so I think that that's the, but the other thing that I can do that I have the power to do is I can make more black male teachers. I have the ability, God put me in the perfect spot to work with black male. I can say, hey, it's not a bad job. Or if you're an African-American male, you major in special education and you go into elementary school, you'll be a principal in four years. Right. You know what I mean? And so just get them to understand how the system works, right? And so, right. but but if, if there's no one that looks like them that could tell them like, man, this works. I know it seems like crazy or working with kids seems crazy, but it's actually a lot of fun. But I'm also in here working with them, having fun with them, right? I, if I work at a school full of 16, 17 year old boys. They are hilarious. You I know bet they mean? are. Oh man, come on. <laughs> I know they are. Man, these boys go hard in the paint, right? So I'm in here having a good time. I'm working my butt off. I'm stressed out all the time. But but as soon as I leave out of this office and I go and talk to one of these kids, man, it'll change your life. It's life changing. Hey there, my producer. Are you sick? No, it's allergies. Ah, jeez. You sound like the Trekkers after a three-day marching powder binge. Ugh, I know it's awful. I know a guy. Have you noticed how many episodes start with I knows a guy or this dude over here? Uh, no, what's your point? You've never noticed anything weird? Uh, no. Like, I I don't have a recorder, and yet these episodes keep appearing. And we seem to keep moving from. Ugh, jeez. Scenario to scenario. I. I mean, do you ever wonder if we're, like, inside a simulation or something? Huh, well, everything seems all right. I mean, uh, we beat the digital land in that simulation back in that Size Matters 71, and, and that was, like, 17 episodes ago if I can do Matt right. I mean, that's what I mean. We keep talking in episodes and making references no one cares about. Listen, and... Jess, I got what's going to cure your allergies, I swear. Now <sighs> you got to come see this guy. I'm just... This is just going to be a mess of sound effects and then a jump cut. Do you see what I mean? I mean, how did we even get here? Right, we, we walked the entire way from the Copro. Uh, you got a burrito at Martinez, and I didn't even get a bite, so I don't oh, even... Oh, yeah, I still have that half in my pocket. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hand-warming burrito. Anyway, this is Pooper's place. Uh, Everyone in Undertown swears by him. His name is what? I don't know, like Steve or something, but... Uh, we all could call him Poopers. I'll, you'll Suddenly see why. I'm not super sure about this, Kyle. Oh, whoa, 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 what is that smell? That is the medicines. Hey, Poops, what's oh, going on? God, it smells like Sasquatch's socks died in That's here. the natural medicines. My producer, he's got some allergies. Maybe you could, uh... The allergies of Bridgeport. Yes, the dab and the trees and the bowl. Ugh, seriously, what is that smell? It is a secret substance blended right here of all natural excretions. Jess, I'm telling you, I had cancer and poopers, he cleared it right up. I cannot believe that. Let me just smear a little of this here and here 
under your nostrils. Just breathe deep. Oh, it smells awful. That's the medication. Oh, I think I'm gonna puke. Oh my god. Oh. Oh. Hey. Wait a minute. I stopped sneezing. You just put a little of this on your lip every morning for a few minutes and no more allergies. Well, what's in it? It's a proprietary blend. I can't believe more I people said. don't use these natural methods. Oh, I hate that this is working. I just wish we could spread the message to more people. Well, maybe we can. Do you think this is really a good idea? Al Pooper says this is the way he gets the immunity herbs. Uh, by smearing whatever this gross gunk is under people's doors? It's genius. Everyone touches it, they get the immunity. I, I'm just not sure. You're so pedestrian. We're going to be hailed as heroes. I, I'm just not sure. Listen, you take a couple bags of this, and I'll take a couple bags of this, and we'll start hitting these door handles. What is this really dog sh- Not entirely. Oh my god, I'm gonna be sick. No, you're not. Your allergies are solved. This week on the Trump Diaries, the American economy suffers its deepest swoon in a century. Trump tries to kneecap the census and the post office. Trump killed a national testing program, believing the pandemic only affected blue states. Trump calls for the elections to be delayed, and a leading ally calls for his impeachment. Again, these are the Trump Diaries. Day 1289, July 31st. The United States suffered its worst quarterly economic contraction on record. America's GDP shrank 9.5% from April through June. That is the largest quarterly decline since the government started publishing data 70 years ago. On a yearly basis, GDP fell at a rate of 33%. Another 1.43 million Americans filed for unemployment. The 19th straight week that the tally exceeded 1 million. At least 30 million Americans are out of work. Enhanced unemployment assistance was allowed to lapse by bickering Republicans in the Senate who have failed to advance legislation. Democrats passed legislation addressing that lapse two and a half months ago in the House, but that bill has been ignored by Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Current policy proposals from the GOP and the White House seem surreal. The White House is seeking to slash payroll taxes on workers who can't work and allowing business people to deduct the full cost of business lunches that they can't eat. Another balloon floated was to allow the enhanced benefits to continue for a brief period while negotiations continue, but this cannot be done because the state offices that disperse unemployment aid cannot handle such large-scale reprogramming of their services in a short time. Meanwhile, Trump claimed, quote, we're going to have a great year next year. We're going to have a great third quarter. And the nice thing about the third quarter is that the results are going to come out before the election. Dr. Anthony Fauci told the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis he is cautiously optimistic a safe and effective vaccine will be available to the public by the end of 2020. However, Fauci said that Trump's decision to leave shut down decisions to the state was disastrous. Fauci said it essentially imposed restrictions on only half of the country and, quote, there were some states that did it very well and there were some states that did not. Fauci also said Trump's claim the virus would vanish was false. I do not believe it will disappear because it's such a highly transmissible virus. A full federal appeals court is to reconsider the dismissal of a criminal case against Michael Flynn. 
U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan had requested the case be reheard after Attorney General William Barr dropped the prosecution of Trump's former national security advisor. He pled guilty to lying to the FBI. Last month, a panel instructed Sullivan to grant the Justice Department's request to dismiss federal charges against Flynn. And Trump appointed his choice to fill the Pentagon's top policy job to a temporary senior position after the Senate Armed Services Committee canceled a hearing on Brigadier General Anthony Tata. Serious questions were raised about Tata's fitness for the post after it was revealed he had once tweeted that President Barack Obama was a terrorist leader. Day 1290, August 1st. A devastating and deeply reported expose in Vanity Fair said that Jared Kushner and a shadow team rolled out an aggressive national testing and tracing plan only to spike it. That was because at the time the virus was hitting blue states hardest and therefore a national plan was, quote, unnecessary and would not make sense politically. Quote, the political folks believe that it was going to be relegated to Democratic states. They could blame those governors and that would be an effective political strategy. Trump also feared that more testing would only lead to higher case counts and more bad publicity. The report also found evidence that Trump's team not only did not take the pandemic seriously until Chief of Staff Mark Meadows noted that red states were now being infected as well. Trump again called for a delay in the November election, attacking mail-in balloting. Trump claimed falsely, quote, you're sending out hundreds of millions of universal mail-in ballots, hundreds of millions. Where are they going? Who are they being sent to? I don't want to see a crooked election. This will be the most rigged election in history if that happens. In response, a key ally of Trump, Stephen Calabrese, called Trump fascistic and said the call to delay was, quote, its self-grounds for the president's immediate impeachment again by the House of Representatives and his removal from office by the Senate. Calabrese, one of the founders of the Conservative Federalist Society, provided lists of so-called acceptable judges to Trump and has seen many of them confirmed. His remarkable broadside came as Republicans distanced themselves further from Trump's call to delay the election. In a related story, the U.S. Postal Service is experiencing day-long backlogs of mail, particularly in major hubs in large cities, due to changes implemented by Trump fundraiser Louis DeJoy. DeJoy, who was named as Postmaster General, eliminated overtime and instructed carriers to, quote, leave mail behind. The ensuing log jams are cascading, according to the Postal Carriers Union. Trump then threatened legal action after Nevada's legislature passed a bill to automatically send mail-in ballots to all active voters. Trump claimed that lawmakers were, quote, using COVID to steal the state in an illegal late-night coup. Trump also claimed without evidence that, quote, the post office could never handle the traffic of mail-in votes without preparation. Trump's campaign has suddenly paused all ad spending, claiming it was conducting a review and fine-tuning of the campaign strategy the move came less than 100 days before Election Day. Trump has already pulled all money out of the state of Michigan and is apparently cutting spending in Pennsylvania as well. Day 1291, August 2nd. The Department of Homeland Security compiled intelligence reports and dossiers on American journalists covering the protests in Portland, Oregon. Reports were sent to federal law enforcement agencies and others that included descriptions of a New York Times journalist and the editor-in-chief of the law blog Lawfare. The dossier sent noted they had published leaked, unclassified documents about DHS operations in Portland. In a statement, the acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf told his staff to, quote, immediately discontinue collecting information involving members of the press. Brian Murphy, the acting Undersecretary for Intelligence and Analysis, was subsequently reassigned. 
Trump threatened to send the National Guard to Portland to clear out protesters, calling them a beehive of terrorists. However, the first protest in Portland since federal agencies agreed to pull back their officers was peaceful. Governor Kate Brown said that, quote, Trump's troops were behaving like an occupying army in Portland and provoking unrest with heavy-handed tactics for photo ops. Millions of dollars of the Paycheck Protection Program loans went to China-backed businesses in critical sectors. $192 million to $419 million has gone to more than 125 companies that Chinese entities own or invest in. Many of the loans were quite sizable. At least 32 Chinese companies received loans worth more than $1 million, with those totaling as much as $180 million. In a related story, despite sitting on nearly $36 billion of undisbursed funds, other PPP loans to American businesses were inexplicably capped at $150,000. Deutsche Bank has opened an internal investigation into a 2013 transaction between Trump's personal banker and a company part-owned by Jerry Kushner. That banker, Rosemary Vlebic, and two of her colleagues purchased a Park Avenue apartment for $1.5 million from a company called Burgle 715. Kushner and Ivanka Trump reported they had received $1 to $5 million last year from Burgle 715. In 2011, Kushner introduced Verlebic to Donald Trump at a time when most banks refused to do business with him because he had a habit of defaulting. Verlebic and her superiors agreed to take Trump on as a client despite the fact that he defaulted on a Deutsche Bank loan three years earlier. Day 1292, August 3rd. The U.S. has recorded more than 1.9 million new infections in July. That is 42% but more than 4.5 million cases reported since the pandemic began. That is more than double the number from any other month. Deaths in the USA are also rising steeply with a 67% increase week over week. In a grim assessment, Dr. Deborah Burke said that COVID-19 has taken a hold over, quote, large parts of the U.S. Burks also said bluntly that people in hard-hit areas should, quote, assume they are infected. Trump responded that Burks' performance has been pathetic. Trump then accused Burks of unfairly criticizing his response to the pandemic, saying she, quote, took the bait and hit us. Trump also rebuked Fauci, retweeting a video of Fauci, noting that, quote, the U.S. has seen more cases than European countries because it shut down only a fraction of its economy in response to the pandemic. Trump replied wrong. In fact, Fauci is correct. Nancy Pelosi also criticized Burke for being, quote, too positive about Trump's handling of the pandemic and then said she does not have confidence in Burke. Quote, I think the president is spreading disinformation about the virus. She is his appointee, so I don't have confidence there. No. A hot mic later caught Pelosi telling Republican negotiators, wow, Burks, she's the worst. Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said they remain far apart on a relief deal that would restore the expired unemployment benefits. Millions of Americans have been saved from poverty by those benefits, which the White House wants to slash. Mnuchin is also balking at giving monies to local and state governments to help plan for the new school year. Trump spent the day undercutting negotiations on that deal, hurling insults at prominent Democrats before admitting he was not actually involved in negotiations. The bizarre performance has left Republicans shaken as early voting begins in 30 days. Trump then floated the possibility of using an executive order to impose a moratorium on evictions. The White House is also exploring whether Trump can unilaterally extend enhanced unemployment. Trump told reporters at the White House, quote, I have a lot of powers with respect to executive orders, and we're looking at that very seriously. The House has subpoenaed four top aides to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in an investigation into improper use of taxpayer funds. 
Trump, of course, fired the state inspector general at Pompeo's behest in an attempt to short-circuit an investigation into what has been described as a widespread use of funds for personal and political purposes. CNN reports the FBI was so worried that Trump would try to meddle in their work that staffers hid at least three copies of key Russia investigation documents in remote locations throughout the bureau. Day 1293, August 4th. One day after Trump claimed he would ban the popular social network TikTok from operating in the U.S., he reversed course and said Microsoft could acquire the company, but only if they gave the United States a cut. The bizarre claim continues Trump's moves on TikTok, claiming it is controlled by the Chinese government, though the company insists its U.S. operations are firewalled. TikTok users, of course, took credit for tanking Trump's Tulsa rally by filing false seat requests. In an odd interview with Axios, Trump denigrated the late civil rights hero John Lewis, saying he would be remembered mostly because he didn't attend Trump's inauguration. Quote, he didn't come to my inauguration, he didn't come to my State of the Union, and that's okay. But again, nobody has done more for black Americans than I have. He should have come. That was his big mistake. The interview went sideways from there. Asked about the pandemic, Trump ranted that there had been nothing like this since the flu pandemic in 1918 and he wouldn't forget that China had brought the U.S. the virus. In reality, it arrived from Europe. He also claimed there had been 12,000 people at his rally in Tulsa, not 6,000 as the city reported accurately. And then he said, quote, we've tested more people than anyone we thought of, 60 million. There are some people who are saying we have tested too much. His interviewer asked reasonably, who? Trump replied, read the manuals, read the books. Swan replied, what books? Interviewer Jonathan Swan then completely flummoxed Trump when Trump tried to hand him a stack of papers his aides had obviously prepared for him, but that he did not understand. Swan pointed out that Trump was citing the percentage of people who die as a proportion of the public, not the proportion who die as a share of patients. Trump seems not to understand when he said, quote, Oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the U.S. is really bad, much worse than South Korea, Germany, etc. Trump replied, you can't do that. Swan replied, why can't I do that? Trump then suggested that Jeffrey Epstein may have been murdered before again sending his best wishes to Ghislaine Maxwell. Maxwell, of course, is in jail awaiting trial on child sex trafficking charges. New York prosecutors told a court they are seeking Trump's tax returns because they are investigating extensive and protracted criminal conduct at the Trump Organization. Claiming that the organization is engaged in criminal conduct for over a decade, the state called for an immediate release of tax returns and said they expected them to show fraud. The Census Bureau is ending all counting efforts a month shorter than previously announced. That includes all in-person and phone efforts. The move raised the specter of interference from Trump, who has repeatedly tried to depress the census count in the belief it will benefit Republicans. Day 1294, August 5th. Faced with growing evidence that Democrats are now voting at a rate of two to one in key states, Trump suddenly encouraged Floridians to vote by mail and claimed that Florida's election system is safe and secure. That comes after he repeatedly tried to discredit mail-in voting. White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows is trying to bypass the stalled congressional negotiations with a series of executive orders. Those orders would delay the collection of federal payroll taxes, reinstitute an expired eviction moratorium, and extend enhanced federal unemployment benefits using unspent money already appropriated by Congress. It is unclear if this is legally permissible. House Leader Nancy Pelosi responded, quote, do what by executive order? Well, you may be able to extend the moratorium on evictions, but unless you have some money with that, it's helpful, but it's not the whole thing. 
And again, you can't do the money without the Congress of the United States. Facebook removed a post from Trump's page featuring a clip of an interview he had given earlier in the day to Fox News in which he falsely said children were almost immune to coronavirus. It is the first time Facebook took such a move. Twitter announced that it had frozen the president's campaign account, quote, Team Trump, for a post linking to that video. The State Department's acting inspector general has resigned less than three months after replacing the inspector general Trump fired. Stephen Acard became inspector general after Trump abruptly fired Steve Linick after Mike Pompeo asked him to. Linick had been pursuing investigations into Pompeo and potential misuse of department resources. And House Democrats are now investigating a $765 million federal loan made to Kodak to make ingredients for generic drugs. It is unclear why Kodak was given the loan to make the ingredients when other generic drug makers already existed in the USA with the capacity to make similar ingredients. And the Trump campaign has sued the state of Nevada over its plan to send absentee ballots to all active voters, falsely claiming that expanding mail-in voting would make voter fraud inevitable. Trump also claimed publicly Republicans would never win with mail-in voting. Day 1295, August 6th. 1.2 million workers filed new claims for state unemployment benefits last week. That was the lowest weekly total since March, but it was the 20th straight week of claims over 1 million. Trump again said the coronavirus pandemic will go away like things go away, and falsely claimed that only relatively small portions of the U.S. are seeing increases in cases. In fact, the U.S. continues to see tens of thousands of new daily cases and recorded 1,400 deaths on Tuesday. Trump then called into Fox and Friends and claimed, quote, some doctors say children are totally, virtually, and almost immune to the virus. Quote, my view is these schools should open. This thing is going away. This is false. In fact, emerging research indicates a connection between COVID-19 infections and significant neurological damage in young brains. Multiple reports say that Trump is struggling to grasp the severity of the pandemic. He still doesn't get it, a key aide told NBC. He does not get it. Those reports say that Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, has essentially been lying to Trump, shielding him from the facts. One person with knowledge of the situation said, quote, Meadows is a Kool-Aid drinker. They are keeping Trump in the dark. Trump said he is considering delivering his Republican National Convention speech from the White House. That move was immediately questioned by Republicans who noted it would be illegal and that staffers participating in it would be in direct violation of the Hatch Act. Nancy Pelosi said tartly, you don't have political events in the Capitol. You don't have political events in the White House. It won't happen. New York state prosecutors have subpoenaed Deutsche Bank, Trump's longtime lender. That is a signal that their criminal investigation into Trump's business practices is more wide-ranging than previously known. Trump has been fighting a subpoena into his tax records. New York State appears to be seeking confirmation of wide-scale fraud at the Trump Organization. In apparently off-the-cuff remarks, Trump called yesterday's deadly blast in Beirut a terrible attack. Quote, I've met with some of our great generals, and they just seem to feel it was not a some kind of manufacturing explosion type event. This was a, seems to be according to them, they would know better than I would, but they seem to think it was an attack, it was a bomb of some kind. Trump's words immediately ignited confusion and anger in one of the more combustible parts of the world. There is no evidence the blast was an attack of any kind. Fertilizer left in a warehouse since 2013 apparently ignited in 50 Celsius heat. Three defense officials subsequently said they had no idea what Trump was talking about. 
lawmakers remain far apart on the economic rescue plan with a fight over the postal office becoming a new front. Democrats are calling for protections to mail-in voting to be included in any relief bill. Both sides remain far apart on unemployment benefits and aid to state and local governments. Mitch McConnell, however, said he would break with the White House and support enhanced unemployment benefits if it would lead to a deal. 60% of Americans support a mandatory nationwide stay-at-home order for two weeks to slow the spread of the virus. 85% of Americans support a national mask order. Just 13% think the United States is on the right track. Trump's approval ratings have slipped now to 35%. These are the Trump Diaries. Studio A has been closed due to the pandemic. Please enjoy this special new track by Sen Morimoto. The Tasha and Sen live sessions are now available for download, benefiting the Prison and Neighborhood Arts Project. More information is at morimotosen.bandcamp.com and tashamusic.bandcamp.com. All music is copyrighted to the respective artists. I shouldn't live for member a day Shouldn't live for member a day I feel awake I shouldn't live for member a day I feel awake I shouldn't live for member a day Ooh, I feel awake You know how I'm always feeling You know how I'm always feeling Ooh, it's not me I couldn't and I shouldn't live for member a day Ooh, I feel awake I shouldn't live for member a day It's not me, I couldn't and I shouldn't live for a member a day Ooh, I feel awake, I shouldn't live for a member a day Ooh, I feel awake, I shouldn't live for a member a day Ooh, And I'm always feeling, how I'm always feeling Ooh, how I'm always feeling Ooh, It's not me
I'm under the impression that there's a lot more re- there's a lot more research into the idea that in fact the greatest the greatest uh, detriment to mankind is in fact monogamy. That and that is why I there is no way there is no monogamy in nature. There is no way you can have a stable relationship in a monogamy, and that's what science tells us. Absolutely. When you look and at at chemical stability, if we want to get really regressive about it. A bond between two molecules is much weaker than that same bond between three. If, if, if the pyramid is the – the triangle is the most powerful shape in chemistry and it has three ends to it. Um, mm-hmm. It makes up the vast majority of the shapes you will see in the natural world and that's why myself, right. I am a part of a polycule. Yeah. Right. I mean it just – I know the, the research has also been done. Um, on on the distribution of people. And if you think about a triangle, this is actually a good tangent that you brought us on, Rowan. But if you think about a triangle, if you think about a triangle standing straight up, think about it. There's one angle at the bottom. I mean, we're sort of getting into anglerfish here with angles. Mm-hmm. This is surprising. But you have one angle at the bottom. You have another angle at the bottom. And then you have a third angle at the top. Now, in nature, what we find is that of the dis- distribution of both people and all of the animal kingdom, there are twice as many what are, what scientists are calling power bottoms as there are uh, tops, which only makes sense that these three these 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 three groupings are just make more sense in nature. Well, and and it's nice to see that this is finally coming forward because um, there's a lot of. Uh, 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 the the three body problem, for example, has been this very notoriously uh, excuse me this very notoriously hard to figure out problem in science by so called scientists. But my viewpoint, and I think the viewpoint of um, uh, the Simon Amy program for a new love is, if there's three mm-hmm. bodies, there is no problem. Broadcast every Saturday, eight to nine p.m.
The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.